Won't you lend your lungs to me? Mine are collapsing. Plant my feet and bitterly breathe up the time that's past. Breath I'll take and breath I'll give. Pray the day's not poised. Stand among the ones that live in lonely indecision. Hello, James. <sighs> Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. Today is October 12th, October 12th, and we're taping episode 13. I want to tell the audience that James is uh, a little bit under the weather. Uh, I'll be okay. I just have to wake up. Okay. All right. Well, James, I've been corresponding with a reader and a listener who goes by the name John Paul Barber. And he um, listened to your last podcast you did with the myth of the 20th century. Yes. And he had some comments, and he wanted to hear your thoughts on some other topics. So I will read some paragraphs here that he wrote that I thought were uh, outstanding. I think you'll like them. I think the readers, Uh, listeners will like them. Okay. John Paul Barber writes... During James's interview on the Myth of the 20th Century podcast, he talked about the anxiety he experienced by being in rural Utah at Ishmael's, where nobody locks their doors. He also talked about how safe he feels at his mother's house in the suburbs. I'm curious what James's views on Appalachia are, or if he has any experience with the region or us mountain folk. It's rural and sparsely populated here, but people still keep their doors locked so meth heads won't steal everything they own. Uh, (laughs) Appalachia is inhabited predominantly by people of Scots-Irish ancestry. I'll be the first to admit that we're the Negroes of the white race due to our slightly higher than average time preference, but there's also a more prevalent display of overt masculinity by white men here than you'll see in other regions of the U.S. Despite our shortcomings in certain areas, there's still a shame and honor culture that exists here due to strong ties to that old-time religion. We like to preach and pray till midnight and fuck and fight till daylight. (laughs) Maybe I'm biased, but I think this area will be the last stand of explicit whiteness in this country. They don't call it white Afghanistan for nothing. (laughs) When shit really hits the fan, will James die in Baltimore or will he come here and fight with us? I know he wants to stand his ground on his home turf, but I can see a future where statues are erected in the south of a Yankee general with a French surname. Can he resist that kind of legacy? Thank you, John Paul Barber. That's excellent. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was really cool. I spent from my 13th to 18th year living in Appalachia, Western Pennsylvania. Uh, I knew people that lived in the the, the low run of mountains. There, you're talking about. Uh, North and west of Uniontown in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, east of Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, so it's really where the Appalachians take a dip right there. 
I enjoyed my time vacationing in West Virginia a lot. I like West Virginia better than Western Pennsylvania because there were fewer people. And I really like uh, the forested mountains. And um, I've thought about uh, living there in the past. I I really like Harper's Ferry. I thought about maybe moving there and, um, and writing there if I could make enough money. Uh, to support myself just writing. So there's a train that goes through Baltimore. It also goes right through Harper's Ferry. The uh, uh, a guy that used to work for me ran a resort for a while above the Duck River uh, on the way to uh, Romney, West Virginia. I think it was along Route 50. If, if you follow it east, you end up in Winchester, Virginia. And that was just beautiful country. It's a favorite place I've been to. And the, the elevations are nothing like I experienced out in Utah. But things are really steep, and um, it turns to night almost immediately because as soon as the the sun goes on to the other side of one of these forested mountains, that's it. It's like somebody turned the ice switch out. So I uh, and I've I've set various fiction in the, in the Appalachians too. Uh, I gave up uh, speaking of uh, the, the last readout of the white uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the white people. I set a um, a science fiction story which I began and which I stopped so that um, my webmaster's house wouldn't get firebombed about. And Islamic America from the point of view of an agent that was sent to infiltrate a Christian enclave above Cumberland, Maryland. Hmm. So I, uh, I didn't continue that, but I used the Cumberland setting and, uh, Malediction song. Yeah. Um, you know, the prequel to Reverend Chandler and actually, um, the uh, Appalachians figures prominently in my f- series of novels, The Sunset Saga. And the last book, White Sky Canoe, takes place uh, in West Virginia. Mm. Okay, I haven't written it yet. I mean, it's been outlined for seven years. And I'm still finishing. So I think Seven Moons Deep has about 70,000 words in it. It's still not done. Mm. But that's the, the next to last one and it uh, the the last chapter of that is in uh, is also in uh, West Virginia above the Kanawha River uh, at a park at Point Pleasant where you can see Ohio from the other side of the Ohio River. Oh. So yeah, I've, uh, I'm pretty much uh, uh, in love with uh, Appalachia. What I really uh, felt an objection to is when I saw a proposal for um, you know the uh, the black Africans have a um, separatist idea where they get all the where they get like a block of five southern states mm. I think that's the wrong way to do uh, to go if you do that I think what should happen is they should get parts of more states and not get any of Appalachia mm. for instance uh, give you give the black nationalists all the way up to the Baltimore-Philadelphia corridor on the East Coast, 
but don't let them have any of Appalachia because they, they never had any of it. It's it's not something that they would want anyhow. And um, they would actually get richer territory uh, being on the coast, but that's also territory that's really harder to hold against the bankers mm. who are taking over everything. So um, uh, that, that's where I stand on that. Uh, John Paul Barber. Oh, the Scots-Irish. Uh, now, in Appalachia, you have Scots, you have Irish, and you have Scots-Irish. The Scots-Irish were actually, uh, they were Scottish traders who were, uh, who surrendered to the British, and they gave to Coladon, and were used to settle northern and western, uh, northern and eastern Ireland, uh, in a bid to eradicate the Irish, you right. know, as these Scots were settled in Ireland, the, the displaced Irish were shipped to America where they were worked to death on plantations. And many of them found their way into the Appalachians at the, uh, Lord Dunmore's War. Lord Dunmore was a traitor Scotsman. He was a Scots-Irish. Uh, Jackson was also a Scots-Irish. So I like a lot of the Scots-Irish historical figures. Uh because they came and they acted as frontiersmen uh, immediately. The British knew that they were going to be able to give them a shit gig and they were going to be able to handle it. Uh, but the whole Scots-Irish thing has been used to overshadow the fact that Scotch and Irish were separately and for 150 years before the uh, Battle of Culloden were used uh, to uh, clear the land and, and settle the plantations. And by the time you get the word Dunmore's War, he had uh, an English, Scots-Irish uh, militia force of about a thousand paired up with a purely Irish militia force of about a thousand. He took the Scots-Irish and English guys up to bivouac and have a parlay with the Shawnee, who were also... Irish, Scotch, English, and Scotch-Irish. <laughs> the Shawnee were largely white guys. And while he was uh, parlaying with uh, Chief Cornstalk, who looks exactly like that guerrilla right-wing journalist O'Keefe, only with a feather in his hair, um, the Shawnee soldiers under Puckinswaw, who I suspect was a half-breed, and he was Tecumseh's father, um, they went south to Point Pleasant on a Kanawha and... Ohio River. Ohio just means good river. Um, so Ohio River is a way of saying good river, river. Uh, the uh, the Shawnees attack at night, and they basically fought a, fight a bloody draw uh, as a setup. And then when the Irish, the Irish commander had a bullet in his chest, and he was still ready to fight the next day, and he caught up with the Shawnees who had retreated to one of their principal towns, might have been Cornstalk Town, and Dunmore interceded. Dunmore actually came, like the cops protecting hood rats from vigilantes. Dunmore showed up with the English and the Scots-Irish and prevented the Irish from counterattacking the Shawnees. He had already made a pact with the Shawnees uh, to try to keep the Irish bottled up and not let them over the Appalachians. Uh, so that's just a little bit of that history. It's really complicated. Therefore, 
the, the history is never going to get out there because it's too complicated for Indian Americans to understand <laughs> that you had all these different factions, that you had whites on both sides, Indians on both sides, English on both sides, Irish on both sides, and how the Scots were actually used uh, as a fifth column against other whites. That is the Scots-Irish, the original Scotch, the guys that lost the battle of Monmouth, um, and men before that, and guys like Peter Williamson were kidnapped as boys. Those guys were fighting as rebels in Virginia in the 1600s. They were uh, they were POWs that were sold into bondage in, in Virginia, and a lot of them escaped. Uh, I reviewed a book uh, titled Saddle Mountain Folk. I think that's the title of it. I reviewed it about four years ago. It's a rare book I found at a, at a flea market that is uh, about uh, – a uh, a mountain enclave above Knoxville, I think, uh, where uh, – no, it's called Saddlebag Folk, I think, uh, because everything that they got from this one riverboat, uh, I think above Chickamauga, had to be hauled up the mountain in saddlebags. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, i uh, sorry to go on so much there, but, yeah, I uh, love Appalachia. My, I have a few fictional characters that will die bloody deaths in Appalachia in my novels, trying to defend against uh, uh, the encroachment of civilization and the erasure of uh, <laughs> of the last crackers in the mountains. But uh, I don't have anybody up there uh, to to live with. You know, technically, uh, Sean and those guys up in Pennsylvania who I coach, they live in the foothills of the Appalachians. Mm. And that out-of-service PA where we have our uh, our annual gathering, it's it's about 1,500 feet up from sea level, I think. Uh, the, the Appalachians, yeah, yeah, the Appalachians up around western Pennsylvania and western Maryland barely get up to 2,000 feet, if that. You have down near the Great Smoky Mountains, and in Tennessee, you have over you have mountains that are over 6,000 feet. Oh. Uh, there was there was a little place called Franklin. That was an experimental breakaway kingdom of the uh, Republic of the United States that was named after Benjamin Franklin uh, <laughs> in the area of Western Virginia, the Western Carolinas, and Eastern Tennessee. I never I'm very heard of that. I'm very interested in that area. It's very high elevation, and uh, that's kind of like the heart of Appalachia as far as I'm concerned. And also I'm very interested in going to the Great Smoky Mountains National Forest because that should be one of the only areas where there's still old growth forest on the East Coast. Oh. And I'm interested in that. Uh, the the novel uh, Seven Moons Deep and uh, actually Ghost of the Sunset World, part of that was set down there in the Great Smoky Mountains also. So, so that's uh, – thank you, Mr. Barber. Glad you appreciate it. I hope I'm – not too much of a disappointment on, on that cap. I don't think he'll be disappointed. Uh, he's inviting you to uh, to be a general for for the new Appalachian state that will emerge after the collapse, right? It's kind of okay, an well, imaginary scenario. I could be a janitor slash military advisor. How about that? Instead of general, I'm kind of allergic to high level leadership. I mean, it's almost ate my soul uh, commanding 100 half retarded grocery store employees. I, I couldn't imagine if uh, I had to actually lord it over real 
uh, intact human beings, that would really be rough on my psyche. So maybe it so, would be better. I'm just not. Uh, I'm just not cut out for it. But I, I would love to come out as your diabolical advisor. All right, that sounds like a a, a compromise. I, I right, right. I would be, uh, <laughs> you know, I would be willing to be your little white devil. A little white devil. Well, they might not make statues of you if you're an advisor, right? I I pictured uh, I pictured you brandishing a Bowie knife and the well, statues. How about if on the statue, okay, uh, you have me as uh, a little demonic figure it- polishing. <laughs> Uh, the belly knife of uh, the uh, let me see whoever the soul of Nathan Bedford Forrest transmigrates into <laughs> I think it's locked in a grave somewhere when the Dendu finally dig it up and they exhume his grave Release to move it curse. I think it's his soul's going to get released <laughs> and it's going to get sucked up into somebody in Appalachia hopefully a highly intelligent MMA competitor mm. okay and then I would uh I would be honored to uh, to be his advisor. Okay, and, okay. Uh, that, that that would be ideal for me for right. for my level. I can live ambition. with that. I can, I can live with that. I know you'll <laughs> get me a job in the new administration. We've talked about this before, but I'm always looking out for my uh, career. You know, so. Well, you know what? I'm I'm throwing this wide open right now. You, if if I do become king, you may. Okay, sure. Uh, a virtuous married woman. You may be the den mother of my secretarial pool. Okay, <laughs> no. as a single. I want a real state. job. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, this would be a real job. This would be very important. Okay, as a secretary of state, or uh, as as a head of uh, of a new state, I would the secretarial pool could, could conceivably really hang me up a lot. I wouldn't want to go the way of. Uh, uh, many cons before me and just drinking myself to death. Mm. I'd like to accomplish something uh, more than that. So we would have to uh, have uh, women in the new regime put into positions that were appropriate for their level of intellect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's that's all I have to say about that. You're hired. Okay. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll accept the first part of the deal, but I'm not not convinced about my my role in the new administration. <laughs> well, well, let's go go down. Okay, because I have a list of, of uh, <laughs> I have a list of uh, policy areas that I I want you to um, tell us how you would administer this new nation state. Um, so the first one, and you can always jump in if you have any other more important policies that you want to discuss but uh no the policies that you're going to frame these are these are all the policies that there are you know, really? i'll just say that i want i i believe in impulsiveness has its own virtue here mm. so this is it you know my answers to these policies this will be the sum total of the constitution of uh, <laughs> you know this belligerent state of america okay yeah. <laughs> well the first one i thought of was education and my question was, James, how will you ensure the education system supports the nerds who will launch humanity into space while still ensuring that knuckleheads can administer concussions to one another? Okay, the uh, the the schools, 
the schools will just be destroyed. The uh, the male teachers will be uh, used as stewards to maintain the libraries. So maybe one in one in five schools doesn't get destroyed, and it'll be a library slash media center. It'll be initiated. It would be uh, staffed by the surviving uh, uh, male teachers uh, from the school system, and uh, they would. And people that didn't know how to read, they could coach them on reading, and people that didn't know how to read, they could direct them to the portions of the collections they want. This is how uh, this country was made great by people educating themselves, yeah. not by this drone system of brainwashing. Okay, I'm so 100% the school system, school system is the enemy. The school system goes, will retain the male teachers to uh, to serve as librarians and custodians. I'm with you. Can okay. we have a girls' library? Uh, okay, that could be another one of your jobs. You could set up a girls' library uh, when you're not um, winnowing my uh, collection of displaced female teachers because uh, they're <laughs> headed for the harem. Uh, they they need re-education. Okay, okay. And when I'm done with them, they can be dispersed to worthy men in the population. Uh, once I've done the rough job of um, breaking them of all these bad habits oh, that have been inculcated through this horrible. Uh, setup that we have now. Oh boy. Uh, well, um, all right. Next topic: criminal justice. You. I thought we discovered that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go. No. You just finished serving on a jury, and I was actually pleasantly surprised because you thought it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a total disaster. That you guys came up with a fair verdict in the end, and. You said, I think you said that it's as good a process as you could hope for in the in the system. Yes. So, do you have any any other thoughts on the the criminal justice system? What would you keep? What would you change? Oh well, I I think the system how uh, it's set up is would be fine if you uh, if you dismantled the whole uh, political superstructure around it. So uh, I would actually keep that intact. We we could just rip off the founding fathers on okay. on that. And uh, I, I talked to a, a few fellows that are lawyers, and they uh, told me about the uh, the English common law and uh, how it was adapted to the American frontier. And I actually got a list of books that I should be reading the help me out on it and um mm. yeah it seems like and this isn't my only uh uh brush with the law i actually had to stand before a magistrate to see if i was going to be tried for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon once so i thought that that turned out fairly there's uh i was a witness in court a couple of times and i got to see the circus that is the the liberal end of the court system that's really devoted to uh, being the parent of these uh, urban orphans that have just been destroyed by uh, our social system. And the judge is their advocate. I mean, it's it's just horrible mm-hmm. uh, watching uh, watching all the all the people go before the judge without counsel, totally unprepared. And she basically becomes their mommy. And they use a lot of female judges for this. 
even that, where you have where society has been set up to actually destroy a certain segment segment of American manhood, you still have uh, you have some people that are uh, doing a type of uh, benign shepherding of uh, of these orphaned people in court, and you have other people that are using the courts uh, to even make their lot worse and to destroy society even further, but. Uh, I think they would go by the wayside as soon as you got rid of the education system and you no longer had this feeder crop of uh, people coming out of universities stirring up trouble and trying yeah. to destroy society. Yeah, actually we didn't touch on that, but the universities are, pro- in my view, probably much worse than the, the K-12 through education system. It's more important, well, I, more important to I burn down the universities than the schools. Well, I just looked at one of them all as the same thing. They're yeah. all schools. Yeah. So, they're, yeah. boom, they're, they're all done. So, yeah, I'd like to point out that that leaves me with a heroic amount, a heroic volume of training to be done because I'm also going to have to deal with all these middle-aged uh, feminist uh, professors that I'm going to have to retrain also. So, it's not just, it's, it's not just me, you know, breaking in, you know, student teachers and, and so on. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, polishing old battle actors and such that goes <laughs> along with that. So, you know, this is me basically falling on my sword for, for the rest of mankind. It's a big so, sacrifice. I yes, I'd like it to be looked upon in that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next topic is really the same topic. Because I thought about divorce, child custody, family law. These are topics that are big in the manosphere. I don't know if it's called manosphere anymore, but um, and it it definitely uh, fits in with the criminal justice system and welfare. I think we covered this a long time ago with you that um, you had the idea that welfare benefits should at least partially accrue to fathers because the way it's set up, it's it rewards. Uh, fatherless families so my question i'm assuming there probably won't be any welfare in your new country because that's kind of a no no but regardless of that um well here's what i wrote james you are known to be a devoted father and grandfather long divorced and currently practicing informal polygamy (laughs) how would your new nation support the role of the father and the patriarch without leaving large numbers of men out in the cold due to the harem-building habits of warlords such as yourself? Oh, oh well, I think uh, I think that there's not going to be any, uh, there's not going to be any women or children out in the cold, uh, you know, in the household of various warlords, that's for sure. But then you have to worry about uh, the beta males. Yeah. Okay, so so we, we need to look out for these guys. And uh, make sure we can uh, turn them into uh, useful cannon fodder for the for the wars of liberation to come. The uh, I think you just have to let families take care of it. If you have, well, for instance, uh, my wife kicked me out; she fired me. Hmm. Okay, so I continued to support her and my son. Now, I had a relationship with my son, so uh, he had a say from the very beginning. Even though he was only 13 years old, I'd give the money to him. 
Okay. Mm. So he knew that this was coming into the household, and he would demand for an accounting. Mm. Not, not that he had to, because uh, you know she, uh, no, she was a good girl. So in the case. What you have to worry about, particularly if you're going to have an Appalachian nation, you don't have to worry about the, the woman gets addicted to drugs yeah. or the guy gets addicted to drugs or they both get addicted to drugs. I mean, that's really what you got to worry about. That's what's primarily been used to destroy white families. Uh, black families have been destroyed by appealing directly to the mother and getting her to take a payoff in order to not live with the father to children has encouraged her to have children through various fathers uh, to break any hold he might have potentially on the household. Mm-hmm. So, but the way whites have been attacked, as uh, John Paul Barber mentioned, they've been attacked through the drug market. Yeah, This is what has been used to attack white people. So what you've got to worry about is addiction on at any level. And one, one thing that instead of working on children is property which is traditionally how we deal with it. The child is either usually the mother's property, if not the father's property, if not the government's property. Mm. The child should be looked upon as a person, a member of the family, and any benefits for their support should go directly to the child, okay, in care of a steward. It could be a grandparent. It could be an uncle. It's got to be somebody, uh, from the family or from the community that's going to look out for them and make sure the money goes to the right people if there if there are if there are any funds uh, but I prefer just making these parents work and support their children they don't have to do it in the same household mm. okay so if you're going to be a crack whore and you don't want to take care of your children well since prostitution is going to be illegal in the belligerent states of Appalachia, then this whore is going to have to give up uh, child support out of her whoring money. Okay, mm-hmm. and if uh, if the guy just wants to uh, run off and be a bum, well, then he gets uh, marshaled into the military and sent to the front line. Uh, but if he would rather work and be a productive citizen, then he's got to support the child too. Now, uh, ideally. One of these people is going to have a household under them, but if not, uh, a grandparent or an aunt or uncle uh, could do. Uh, I really dislike the way uh, wars have been waged on the extended family. Yeah. In, in Baltimore City, I know people, grandparents, who are trying to get custody of their children because both the parents are drug addicts and the government wants to give them the foster parents, people who are doing this for a profit. Yeah. They're getting money from the government to do this. Yeah. These grandparents are already doing it for free. They're already feeding their grandchildren for free because all the food stamp money that's been sent to the mother has been blown up her nose or shot in her arm. Right. Okay, so I think taking the parents out of the welfare stream is the way to go. Yeah, if they need welfare in the first place, they've already demonstrated that they're not really capable of managing it. That's right. So send him to the army, send her to the whorehouse, and uh, you know let the grandparents, uh, aunts and uncles, uh, uh, raise this child. And it's one reason why in, in uh, uh, crime program, crime TV, and in movies where the uncle 
is always made out to be this evil person that's a rapist or something like this mm -hmm. because it's a way to take that support system away. It's a way to attack the, the extended family. Yeah. When you talk to guys whose father has abandoned them and whose mother's been either good or bad, uh, the guys that, um, that have some kind of sense of how to be a man, they're guys that had an uncle that either stepped up because their brother screwed up and they took over being the mentor of this boy or it's the brother of the mother. Yeah. And our society is and a small part dedicated to taking the aunts and uncles out of the mix and, and uh, denying uh, – the children, particularly adolescent children, any contact with an aunt or uncle, which is often more useful than having them try to identify with a parent or a grandparent because it's often somebody closer to their age. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and this could be someone with more time that maybe either doesn't have kids of their own yet or if it's an older person, they don't have – their kids are grown. Read the novel uh, North and South. I forgot the guy's name who wrote it. It, it was even a – I think Patrick Swayze played Ori in the made-for-TV movie. There's a character named Ori who's the uncle of a character named Charles. Charles ends up becoming the main character in a story as the story uh, extends past the Civil War and goes out to the West. And the formative uh, figure and – the life of Charles was his uncle Ori. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean that's just that's the oldest tradition that there uh, that there is. Yeah, and it's it's under attack from all angles. There there's no right uh, grandparents and uh, uncles and aunts have no legal rights to any say yeah. Uh, yeah. over young people. If the, if the mother and the father are gone or convicted or drug addicted, it's just a government-owned child. So yeah. this whole idea that the child is property, of course, that starts with the way this country was founded on child slavery. Okay, The whole idea that the child is property would be abolished uh, in the belligerent Confederate states of Appalachia. <laughs> Well, um, I I agree with you. I, I have a, had a tiny bit of involvement with Child Protective Services here as an extended family member. And they do, you know, they do favor, they'll try to give you the kid first, in theory. Um, but it's it, it didn't really work out that way in our case um, due to some other factors. But, you know, but yeah, it, it's... The child is really becomes the property of the court, and it's really heartbreaking and difficult, especially when there are other family members there who are ready to take action. I mean, she, you know, this kid should have come home with me on the the first day, you know, and uh, she didn't, and she stayed with a very questionable family, in my in my opinion, and then was released to the parent that had harmed her in the first place. So. It was a really bad experience for our family. Um, but, yeah, it's just a nightmare. And I think that our, our case was really mild in comparison to so many others. So um, it just causes a huge amount of damage. It's awful. Well, the idea that how this benefits the government 
is the court scenes I was discussing when I went as a witness and when I was a, when I, when I was a plaintiff one time and saw all of these young black guys prating up before these judges and the, the judge basically taking, stepping a, you know, in her mind, stepping out of her robes and stepping into the apron of the mother of the house. Mm, yeah. And the court is still the parent of that guy, even after he's 25 and he shot somebody. Yeah. He's still the child of the court. And that child of the court thing, in large degree, I think sets him up to be the adult child of the court. Oh, yeah. And then to the criminal justice system and just stay there. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear about uh, that situation of yours there. Uh, yeah, it was awful. I mean, it's it, it's much better and pretty much resolved at this point, but it was really eye-opening. I had never been involved like that, so it was a few years ago. Uh, well, I think that your your system makes sense. I like. I also like the fact that. An extended family could be free to put really pr a lot of pressure on people, too. That Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I think that in our, in this, in American culture, you know, Anglo-Saxon culture, let's say, it's sort of like not your business. Like, oh, well, you know, your cousin's doing something really dumb, but hey, he's, he's just your cousin, you know. He, it's just the same as anybody on the street. It's not your business to go and do something about it, but... If you have extended family accountability, then you can go and try, you know, do whatever it is you might be able to do to help. Right. And, and especially the utility of having uh, uncles and grandfathers. Yeah. You got somebody that you can expend. You know, the, the big weakness of the nuclear family is, okay, so if I've got a daughter and some jerk knocks her up, and doesn't want to uh, support the child or have anything to do with the child. Well, I'm still head of a household. If I go to prison, uh, then the whole family collapses like a house of cards and yeah. becomes prey to all kinds of things. Yeah. But if I'm granddad, or if I'm the, or if I'm the uncle that never got my act together, and I'm I'm between uh, military enlistments. Well, then that's an expendable, you know, that's somebody that's economically an expendable member of the family who can put real pressure on somebody. And nobody's going to be afraid of somebody's dad now because everybody knows the dad doesn't want to go to prison with a yeah. bunch of 30 year old guys. And if you have uh, two, if you have two extended families there, you could put diplomatic pressure too. You could go to the guy's dad and the guy's uncle and. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you get the you get the men from both sides of the family together, right? <laughs> you know, because like it or not, now it's a family because you mix the bloodlines. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, they they both have a say, and you get the men together, and you put pressure on this guy. Right. And this is why the turn of the eighteenth and nineteenth century, uh, or around nineteen hundred, uh, according to Lionel Tiger, over half of wedding dresses uh, were made to fit pregnant people. <laughs> Okay, because they, they, the old men were not going to put up with some guy knocking up their daughter or their granddaughter and then not taking care of the kid. Yeah. Okay, he's you know he's going to take he's going to take care of what he had a hand in creating. Right. You know, and that's the oldest thing in 
in human culture, and it's been systematically eradicated. Yeah. Now, the the taboo nature of the, the man that's not at home with his child has been taken advantage of uh, that – that animus against him on the part of the general public is still there. Uh, so the state has actually harnessed that as a way to further emasculate and marginalize men once they have a child and they're not part of the household, even though they might want to be part of the household. Right, right. Okay, so so the, 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 the basic human instinct is actually used by the state against the people yeah. that have that feeling. Okay, so it's uh, that's where you get into really the uh, the genius of social engineering, uh, right yeah. there. That's that that's a really clutch aspect of that. And it turns everybody into a product. Um, and I've been reading, I've been looking through your Big Ron entries from the earlier ones. He he brings this up too with regards to drugs and how junkies are just. They're really just like livestock, and so are children in the system, and so are criminals, because each of these people who now has the state inserted between them and their families or their consequences, whatever, now they're a product. They need to be looked after. They need a caseworker, a prison guard, um, you know, the whole food stamp industry, which is really uh, an agriculture <laughs> subsidy, a subsidy for big food, right, and big ag. And uh, it just turns into a huge social or a employment program where these people are just a product, the revenue unit. Right. So that's got to go in the uh, belligerent Confederate states of Appalachia. Okay. That, that has no place there. All right. Perfect. Um, okay. Well, the, then the last one is the big one, Department of Defense or Department of War, James. Oh, it's the Department of War. Yeah. Okay, I mean that's <laughs> what what a toxic. That's probably semantically the most toxic uh, aspect or, or, of Orwellian, the United uh, States of America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's just uh, that. It, it would have been at least funny if they would have called it the Peace Department. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but the Defense Department was just ridiculous. How many defensive wars has the United States fought? <laughs> that, uh, it, the first one was a defensive war. World War II was not a defensive war. We put so much pressure on the Japs. We were about ready to strangle that nation economically. So they do this last gasp attack against our farthest flung outpost, and they meet with unmitigated disaster. You know, that was the defensive war. That was like Mike Tyson calling your names until you took a swing at it, <laughs> so he, just so he could knock your block off. You know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, we the first, when uh, when after Pearl Harbor, the the first thing uh, the U.S. does is go after Germany. It doesn't even, yeah, it doesn't exactly. even go after the Japanese. <laughs> it's like it's like they're not even they're not even worried about that. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, they know it's just going to be a mopping job. So uh, yeah, it's got to be a war department, and uh, really the tough nut to crack. Uh, if there's ever if there's ever any war in North America, uh, the Rockies. And Appalachia are both going to be the two toughest areas to crack. But in Appalachia, 
you're it's going to be more like Vietnam mm. and less like Afghanistan. It's, you've got 100% tree cover uh, anywhere where you don't have a town or a settlement. Mm-hmm. It's like 100%. That's, that's how it's designed. Um, it's, it's a nightmare for anybody to go to. When I went in Western Pennsylvania, that's what, uh, you know, we were the city people, us and the, the Jewish family across the street were basically the outcasts. Everybody else were the local deer hunting people and every family has got a, they got a 30 out six, a 30, 30, a 12 gauge, a 20 gauge, a 410. Dad's got a pistol. Uh, they got some 22. Somebody's got a 223 Savage. Yeah. You got the whole thing from killing birds up to killing deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your family gun locker, that's it's just not, it's just a nightmare. Your average person is going to be a better marksman than uh, than your average soldier. Yeah, and yeah. it's going to be a lot harder to bring the machines of war uh, to bear yeah. uh, in a heavy forest yes. cover. Yeah. So the the Islamic America that I set up actually has trouble controlling Appalachia. They have a lockdown on the eastern seaboard. I did something really cool uh, with Israel. I had the Israelis getting overrun, okay, once the U.S. support was, was pulled, and they nuked themselves. So, like, Israel oh. goes up under mushroom cloud. The Samson takes option, off. yeah. Right, right. So it takes that with them. So the new state of Israel ends up being Manhattan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the rest, what's well, an island, you know. And, uh, it's not far from the truth, the, right? <laughs> right. The rest of the East Coast is all Islamic, and they have, uh, for Mamluks, they basically have, like, you know, all these black dudes or the, you know, the, what would be the criminal class. They're the Mamluks. And then for Janissaries, you got these sicko white guys uh, that are these uh, really committed atheists. And uh, they're still trying to infiltrate Christian Appalachia. And the character I was writing was actually one of the Janissaries that infiltrates as a Christian Appalachian. And the idea was he was going to join a football team. Is that The one thing that kept people together culturally and this set up, in my mind, in Appalachia was football. And it would have been outlawed. By the oh, caliphate, the American caliphate would have outlawed any type of sports mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so this guy, in order to make himself a uh, a believable Christian Appalachian, would a- actually have to be able to play football. Oh. So he would join a local football team at a bar. Yeah, and it's a, it's a post petroleum setting. I did too, so you don't really have the mechanized option. You know, this guy's riding a bicycle out there. Mm. It's all roads aren't maintained anymore uh, because, uh, you know, after peak oil and it really goes down, the, the military is going to control whatever petroleum is left. Yeah. So anyways, that was uh, that that'll never be written because it conceivably gets my my inheritors in trouble with uh, the new order. I think 50 years from now that the eastern United States, not including Appalachia, will be under Sharia law. That it will be uh, a caliphate. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, I think yesterday, the, yesterday maybe or the day before, the news came out that the Supreme Court 
dismissed the case against the Trump travel van, travel ban. So that's basically in force once again. Okay, so uh, if, if that holds, then we'll amend my prediction to 54 years. Okay, how about that? <laughs> well, I, I um. Till the communists get in power again. Yeah, yeah. I, it's certainly it's never over. It never ends, right? But I always cheer myself up by remembering that Spain uh, did it after 800 years or so, close to 800 years. Well, yeah, I don't think that uh, I think that universalist systems are unnatural. And right now we have two universalist systems that are competing. Uh, Christianity is a universalist system that's really been sidelined. It got seduced and subsumed by uh, what succeeded it, which is a secular banking order. We have this. It's yeah. not even a monetary order. It's a, it's a, uh, a mode of currency worship. Mm. That is competing with with Islam uh, as to who's going to rule the world, and I don't think either one of them gets it done yeah. because one doesn't have a soul and the other one doesn't have a brain. <laughs> you know, so you're. Uh, I, I think the future of both of these things, I think, are going to have more success. Uh, and you're going to have less potentially free territory. Uh, but uh, in the future, I would see the United States broken into five pieces. I think that's geographically, it's going to, to a certain extent, follow geography. Mm -hmm. It's going to be broken into five pieces. And these pieces, none of them are going to be monolithic because in the heart of every one of these pieces, you're going to have this cancerous nodule of urban America. Well, I think that if such a thing happens, and probably it will, maybe not in my lifetime, but I think that there would be massive ethnic cleansing and, you know, not necessarily just slaughter, but people would be forced to migrate, including urban people who, the urban people, the urban liberals will really have to wrestle with this mentally. It's going to be very difficult for people to realize that their whole their whole view of the world is just crashed down around them. It's, you're gonna have like suicides and people just getting slaughtered in their homes because they can't even conceive of doing something about it. That's what I think. The cities are not self-sustainable. That's right. Okay, but what I, what I, I envision that if a collapse comes or, or if you're on the brink and for instance if the United States can no longer project power, power abroad and uh, to the extent that they can dominate the uh, petroleum resources and the legions come home and they start feeding off of our own significant petroleum reserves they still have enough gas to uh, use the military to dominate the entire Thank continent you. of North America yeah. while denying petroleum from the common people uh, in that situation, what I think you would see would, uh, would be that, first of all, all public lands would be military lands. Mm -hmm. uh, you would, that, so that would be all grazing lands, too. The, uh, you, you would see uh, state ownership of large sections of uh, the breadbasket out there in the West and the Great Plains and an attempt 
probably to use rail because maintaining interstates is going to be tougher than rail to actually maintain a network of uh, cities. Yeah. If you could find a way to really take the public lands, tap into the food resources that are currently being sent all over the world and use them to feed uh, the cities that uh, have played ball and you want to keep in your loop. If you're a federalist, then you have a really interesting military situation where you would have this centralized net probably kept together on rails as much as by by interstate highway, surrounded by uh, all the uh, smaller com- communities and uh, the suburban sprawl that would have been uh, left to go to seed yeah, and really go dangerous. its own way. Yeah. A guy that wrote a science fiction novel about 40 years ago concerning this, his name was Arson Darney. He wrote a novel called A Hostage for Hinterland. And you have these basically puritanical horsemen that live out in the American outback, and they all carry Bibles in their saddlebags. And they are... Uh, they basically rule the rural and suburban areas, and the remaining cities are like these domed yeah. cities uh, where the elite uh, remain. But the thing is, uh, we know that the elite would have to remain with the criminal class, so they would still have to rectify that. I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the elite, so-called, and nor in the federal government because – if you talk about rail highways, definitely those things decay in just a couple years, yeah. right? So um, now you talk about That's rail. That's why I think they'd revert to rail, rail yeah, supply. Yeah, but cities. rail still needs a lot of maintenance, and it's extremely fragile because all you have to do is is vandalize one tiny section, and now you've cut supply. It's too, it's too easy to it, the our continent is too big and. I think in some kind of huge crisis like this, the central power, it just wouldn't be there. Would... Yes, but there would be an attempt. Yeah. Okay, and the attempt would take a lot of people with it. There, sure. There's no oh, way yeah. that these hundreds of thousands of federal agents and employees and military personnel with all this latent power in their hands, mm-hmm. there no way, there's no way that they're just going to lie down. What if they just revert to their own territory and their own local and regional loyalties? Uh, well, the mil- the military uh, doesn't have that loyalty. The military has a national federal loyalty, and that you have to you can't forget the Department of Defense. Okay, whatever Homeland Security is being called now, whatever its acronym is, uh, the FBI, the CIA, the ATF, you can't forget these organizations. Now, to a large extent, I see a lot of the law enforcement assets just becoming robber barons and plundering. Mm, but yep. they're going to have they're going to have government authorized vehicles when normal people are no longer authorized to take their vehicle on the road because of gas rationing. They're going to have access to government authorized vehicles, and they've got all these weapons. Mm-hmm. They've got helicopters. Uh, so I think that there'll be a real attempt to stay federal, and I think that the attempt to stay federal would extend to something that's ultimately untenable 
which would be like a candelabra setup, uh, which is what the Puritans, uh, it's how the Puritans imagined themselves in New England as a, uh, as each one of their plantations was like a candle in this candelabra, uh, keeping back the heathen darkness that was represented by the forest and the savages and the runaway white people. Now, I would see a return that that Puritan ethos is still at the center of our whole federal ideology. I would see a return to that. Okay. And there's going to be an attempt. I don't think it would be ultimately, I don't think it would be a successful attempt. And I think it would end up having to do what the Roman empire did and break down regionally uh, for the sake of management. Yeah. Okay. A lot of it depends on uh, whether or not, there's an EMP blast. Mm. Okay, you go totally local then. Oh, yeah. Things break down locally immediately. But as, as long as the net is up, as long as we can still do this, then the feds are still, no matter how horrible it gets, they're going to devote all their resources to preserving their power. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what the Baltimore City government did during the riots, Every single resource was devoted to preser- preservation of power. Nothing was devoted towards anything safety. else. Yeah, no, nothing. No, it's just power. Just yeah. preserving the power. So I would say that you cannot underestimate this machine that can go snuff out a sovereign nation in three days. Yeah. Fact, yeah. The fourth biggest military in the world, as we were constantly reminded, was taken out in three days by this machine. Okay, and now you're talking about taking over, uh, you know, the factory where this machine is put together. Okay, so uh, you know, I, I see, uh, I see a, a federal effort continuing uh, even beyond the point of reason, and main and yeah. remaining a really lethal force for a while. You know, so um, I mean, I could I could be way wrong, but I just can't. You know, with that power, I just don't see how you could count it out. That's all. In the end, Rome, all that mattered was the legions. Yeah. And all it is is a history of whatever guy gets uh, put at the head of the legions for a while. Mm. You know, so uh, American history could devolve into something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so. you're right. I mean, it, even if it doesn't last, it's it's going to ha- cause a huge amount of damage before it collapses. You can't underestimate a war machine as long as there's something for it to eat. Mm. You know, that you couldn't stop the Mongols uh, until you got them out of the grasslands. You know, yeah. when you get them, when you got them into Israel, uh, I think Not that was a fire. and Jute. That was, right. And when you got them beyond the, the Hungarian plain, uh, they couldn't maintain uh, all those horses. You know, so as long as there's fuel to maintain the military machine, you can't count the thing out. And there's a lot of petroleum resources or fossil fuel resources in North America. Really, it's it. We don't really need Saudi Arabia if you really wanted to exploit it. And there's always nuclear power and other. I, I don't. I'm not convinced that solar or wind would ever make a dent in um, in power supply, but nuclear power could. <laughs> I have a crackpot moment. Mm, what's that? Okay. As if that wasn't crackpotty enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. In 1975, I was in the car with my father, 
And this news, this came on a legit news station. I think it was WBAL. Mm-hmm. A man had invented a method for turning water into fuel by using uh, um, by by separating the yeah. hydrogen and the oxygen. Okay. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I can explain right. that. Do you want me to? Okay. Yeah. Well, that, uh, you're gonna explain you it because you got a brain. But I said, wow, that sounds really neat. He said, you're never going to hear about this again. I said, what? He said, I heard about this when I was younger, and you're never going to hear about this again. This guy's name will never be mentioned, this technology. If it's ever mentioned again, you only hear about it once again, and then it will be forgotten again. And sure enough, never heard about it again until 20 years later. It was actually, uh, again, it was on an AM radio. It was during the legit news break. Yep. The guy's going for his patent, then you never hear about him again. So okay. maybe you could explain to me what this supposed technology I will, is. I will explain it to you. Um, and with apologies to, I know you have some professor that reads and anybody else that actually knows these things. But, um, uh, okay, hydrogen is a very good fuel because hydrogen uh, wants to combine with another hydrogen and an oxygen and make water because hydrogen doesn't, it does. It's not stable by itself. So if you burn hydrogen, you get a really powerful explosion. Okay. So hydrogen makes a great fuel. So where where do you get hydrogen? Well, you you can get it from any kind of fossil fuel molecule. That's one. You know, one of the things you're doing when you burn fuel in your car is you're just stripping the hydrogens off and, and turning them into water. One of the big things that comes out of a car exhaust is water. Um, another thing you can do is you can take a jar, a, a glass of water, and run a current through it, and uh, that will actually break apart the water molecules so that your hydrogen and your oxygen are apart, and then when they want to combine together, they release a bunch of energy, and that acts like fuel as well. The problem is that you can't break them apart without adding a bunch of energy into it, and you'll never you'll never get ahead because the the only that you could think of it as like a, a way to transport energy. So if you have, <clears throat> let's say you have some kind of magical solar plant somewhere, you could use it to break apart water molecules and then send bottles of hydrogen on a train. I mean, this would be extremely dangerous, right? I'm not a fan of hydrogen. So you could send the bottles of hydrogen somewhere to be burned and to make electricity or to, put it in, uh, in vehicles or something. But the, the problem with that technology is that you, you're not actually getting more energy out of it. You, you, you're just putting some energy in and then getting it back later. And you always lose, when you do that, you always lose a, at least a little bit. So I apologize to everyone. Please. Oh. <laughs> That's probably... I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And uh, doing Hey, uh, I have to apologize for something. Yeah. You're overqualified for managing the con secretarial pool. Okay. That's what I'm trying to tell so, you. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so we got a promotion in line here. AJ, I'm going to find AJ. She'll be in charge of uh, selecting uh, uh, the con slave girls. Now, that 10% of girls who make the grade and uh, who the con thinks should be able to read and write and, <laughs> 
you know, because I'd like to have, you know, women read me stories before I go to bed and so forth. You can be the <laughs> teacher. You can educate them. How about that? Now, they, they won't necessarily be selected for their high intelligence, so it might not be the easiest uh, teaching job, but I would like them to be literate. Is that good? Do you think you'd accept that? Well, I'll, I'll see if, what the next promotion could be. <laughs> I'm still going to hold out. <laughs> Uh, that, 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 that was impressive. Yeah, so it sounds to me like this idea of using water to get your hydrogen would be, if I compared it to the grocery business, it would be like shipping a trailer load of freight that wasn't on pallets. It was just like all tossed in there, and then you have to go through and use a lot of energy to separate it yeah. and uh, get the parts that you wanted. Yeah, it's something like that. Like you have you have to it, – it's not a free lunch by any – there's no free – there's no free lunch in uh, – in physics or in anything so you you have to you have to find a source of fuel and the great thing about for example gasoline is that a gallon of gasoline is like it's better than like a huge stack of batteries or it's better than you know any other kind of reservoir of fuel that you could think of it's just really convenient and really and it's fairly stable where equivalent amount of hydrogen you know i'm sure you've seen the hindenburg video hydrogen just wants to blow up instantly and gasoline wants to burn not necessarily blow up um but it's it's a, a lot safer uh for my friends out west i have an idea for what to do uh with the air power the air energy in the Rockies. I've seen uh, two men, you know, really tough men cry just looking at the mountains, the mountainsides and uh, the places that they used to hike over hunting and seeing these giant windmills, oh, these the giant white yeah. monstrosities that look like they could be, you know, those uh, creatures from the, uh, the remake of War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. You know, what I think you could do, and I don't know how practical it would be, but the, if you wanted to, if there was some kind of collapse and you wanted to keep these people in the cities and not have them come and trash your area, if you could just reposition all these windmills to surround the cities and kind of cut the legs off of them and make them short so they almost hit the ground when the blade spins around <laughs> yeah. and set them up so it's just like this this big people eating machine oh. that all the all the urban people would have to get through to try to get to you. I think that would be worthwhile. <laughs> That's a great idea. Windmills are also quite useless for energy generation. Yeah, but, I, but they, they they look like they take a leg off. In a oh, heartbeat. they they uh, kill, <laughs> They would squash you. I mean, instantly. They're some really huge ones, and they kill lots of birds and wildlife. That the birds can't really seem to navigate around them, and uh, you can just go collect bird carcasses underneath these wind windmills. Okay, so we'll use them to ring the cities yeah. and keep the people in the cities. Yeah, that's like something out of uh, Indiana Jones or something, you know, like when he has to get through the obstacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that would be, uh, that'd be good. And yeah. You just leave a couple of guys in the surrounding mountains, uh, any really spry fellows that make it through, uh, you know, the gauntlet. Uh, they could just be picked off by your <laughs> good old uh, elk hunters from three, four hundred yards away. Yeah. 
Yeah. The problem yeah, is an that idea they, the Western theater. Yeah, you know? they need a lot of maintenance. So they'll seize up after a while, and you'll have to get more uh, ammunition to... Oh, but that would funnel. You know, they wouldn't all seize up at the same That's time. That's right. That would kind of funnel yeah. the traffic. It would give you yeah. time to... Uh, to train more snipers, I suppose. That's right. It's a good plan. I, I approve. Now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. me, I, as, as far as John Paul Barber's suggesting, I'm, uh, uh, thank you. I would be glad to visit his portion of Appalachia. But uh, when uh, when the urban mind really hits the fan, I think I'll probably just be doing my Charlton Heston imitation uh, from Omega Man. <laughs> 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 bleeding out. <laughs> uh-huh. it, ha- it happens fast, right? We're <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, we're having our own little apocalypse here with the smoke from these fires. It's very it's very smoky today. And we're supposed to stay indoors. And um, I'm in the Bay. I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's got to play havoc with refrigeration systems, the dust. You know, not? Probably. I um, I don't know. It's it's really smoky. It just smells like fresh smoke right outside the door, and the air is really hazy, and it's very dry. Uh, the weather's dry, so it's not looking good out there. Well, I hope the wind blows the other way. Yeah. Hopefully some rain. Hey, I had a a bonus topic here. I thought that was the last topic, but I actually had one more. Do you want one more? Yes, sure. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, this topic I had titled Capitalism or Pastoral Agriculture, and I think we hit it a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you, what would you do, for example, to the CEO of a large dairy concern who promulgates hundreds of varieties of yogurt with no discernible differences between the varieties to be sold in disposable individual serving cups, requiring large energy inputs, manual labor, and creating waste and litter? What would you do to that guy? Oh, my shoes probably need polish. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I want to strike a, strike a presidential uh, pose I need to have well polished shoes so he would probably be qualified for that uh, the what I would suggest just uh, basically economically that what really gets taxed would be uh, would be banking that's yeah. what you would really tax yeah, that's the source the, the, the yeah. Uh, yeah the the yogurt thing I think uh if you can get away from a consumerist society, you know, I know I just threw out how many cups of yogurt? I threw out about 400 cups of yogurt when I came back from vacation. Wow. I threw out another 200 cups a couple of days ago. And all these different barely discernible types of yogurt exist only to take up space that might be occupied by a competitor. Mm. It's a battlefield between advertisers. Yeah. Okay. If you could get away from just having the, the media run consumerist society, uh, then you could get away from this. So I think this takes care of itself. I think as soon as you have really deep economic troubles, a lot of this stuff goes away and people just start buying the two pound vanilla yogurt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but 
the right now that stuff is priced unreasonably high. For instance, the two pound vanilla yogurt will be priced unreasonably high mm-hmm. because it's seen as some as a decision that is only made by the savviest buyers. Who are the people who who have deep pockets? They can afford it. Uh, The people who aren't savvy buyers that don't that don't add up the ounces that are going to buy the ten for six to ten for ten or five for five deal, and they're going to buy this three point two ounce cup of yogurt. Those are generally the people that don't have much money, and they're really sucked into the whole media system yeah. and they make their decisions there. These are the people that buy Sunny Delight instead of orange juice, even though Sunny Delight's more expensive. So I think you if you could kill the celebrity media culture, if you can get rid of things like the NFL for instance, mm. okay, that are just advertising platforms. That shelf I work is really an advertising platform. It's a combination of its own advertising platform, depending on how you set it up, and the uh, dissatisfaction of the advertising that was seen on television. Right. You know, this is the this is the per. I'm setting up the ability for the person to react to the advertising. Yeah. That's all. Close and that these companies know that 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 lemon chiffon whipped. Uh, <laughs> Yoplait Greek yogurt that I just threw a bunch of it away. Yeah. They knew that wasn't going to be a sustainable item. They knew it wasn't going to be in the lineup two years from now. All right. Yeah. Okay. They knew that. Yeah. But if they don't continue to shovel this stuff out there, then another company is going to shovel their stuff out there and take their market share. And there's a huge amount of waste built in on this. I just described to you how much of this stuff I threw away. Yeah. And this keeps the price jacked up. The wholesalers don't give you credit for this stuff anymore. Oh, they don't. Wow. No, this is that's the loss. Now, yeah. uh, you can cut a deal with a wholesaler where they'll give you uh, they'll give you seventy five percent of this throwaway. Mm-hmm. After you do this, you have to have somebody scoop out every cup of yogurt yeah, yeah. and rinse it out yep. and waste all your company's water and, and send it back in a yeah. little banana bo- in a banana box and then you get 75% credit which is about what your cost was well, but but you paid this guy to do yeah. that scoopy thing yeah and uh that's not a straight deal anyhow because the same company that offers you this deal they don't let you to send back any they don't allow you to send back any mislabels mm so if I order 100 cases of uh, tuna fish and I get 100 cases of sauerkraut instead at, at what I get's worth a third of what I ordered, there's nothing I can do about that. I've got to eat it. I take the loss wow. because they're supposedly extending me this reclamation favor. Okay, so even if it's a wholesaler that says they extend reclamation, they don't. Mm. They take the money out of you some other way because the only people increasing profits in the current uh, uh, grocery economy is the manufacturer. The wholesaler is on life support. The retailer is on life support. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I think that just by having a real economy instead of this phony media economy, I think that takes care of itself. Yeah. And, and again, that, uh, that guy would surely be qualified to shine the shoes of the, <laughs> the head of state. It would be a good experience for him. I think so. Okay. character. <laughs> wow, that was a really fun one. <laughs> Thank you to John Paul Barber 
for uh, helping us get started on that topic because that's what we wanted to cover for episode 13. And so I think it got covered. What do you think? Uh, I think it was great. And I would like to ask John Paul Barber, you know, one uh, one question that uh, the, the movie Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. And when maybe you could. I hate to do this to you, but it goes with your hypothetical job description. Anyhow, maybe you could like uh, put up a video sample of this, you know, on your slideshow or whatever. And that scene where the girl's washing the car. Yeah. And cool hand Luke. So I, I just want to know if her like daughter or granddaughter was your neighbor. Okay. <laughs> then I might seriously consider re- relocating. Cutting the grass would be more fun. All right. Thank you so much. John Paul Barber. Thanks, James. Okay. All right. Bye. Thanks for waking me up. Yeah, you're welcome.